All right, welcome to episode 19 of the Happy Raccoon Podcast. This is, of course, Mason, and today we have an especially special guest on the show today because my father from the land of, of Los Angeles area, Simi Valley, California, has come. Um, and not only is he my dad, he is the uh, head pastor of Compass Church of Simi Valley. And uh, he is on the podcast today. He came out for Haven's birthday party, which we just got done doing. So we're both exhausted from chasing children around all day. But um, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on, Pops. You know, I'm just excited to be on here. I've listened to a few of yours, and uh, yeah, I look forward to the day when I can get on. And here I am. So yeah, here you are. What do you? What episodes have you listened to so far? Not to put you on the spot, but um, I listened to the one where you had a friend on who was a priest. Um, yeah, John Groves. John Groves, yeah. And I, I think I listened to the first one and the second one and then that one. Okay. I've gotten tidbits, to be honest with you, but I usually catch them in the car when I'm on my way somewhere and then I get there and... Yeah. Yeah, you know how it is. Podcasts are, I mean, it's kind of a, a double thing in that podcasts are not for everyone and then not every podcast is for everyone. So some people just don't, you know, like I'm really into spoken word. I listen to podcasts more than I listen to music. Like Spotify released like your year in review, you know, and it said that I listened to like, you know, 4,000 minutes of music, yeah. but I listened to 27,000 minutes of podcast. <laughs> like, oh, wow. I'm really into spoken word. And so, and that's, some people are, some people aren't, but, um, yeah, so you listen to the first three episodes, you're, you're, you're missing about 15 in there, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, all good, but I'm happy to have you on here because I, you know, you mean, when people meet you, they might might not, you know, think of it right off the bat um, just from getting to know you, but you actually do have a pretty, like, unique story. Do you feel like you have a unique story? Yeah, I guess, but then I hear other people's, and I think theirs are unique, too. So um, I live, in a sense, with a unique story that I'm constantly looking for the, the next chapter of, and that mm. can get you into a weird place. Um, but, yeah, I guess in my own right, it's, it's very unique. I'm yeah. happy to share a little bit about it. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's unique, especially, you know, some people, you know, have stories of growing up in the same town and they still go to the same church and they're married and they have kids and their kids repeat the cycle and those things are all fine and dandy, but I do think that you have a, a pretty unique testimony, but um, yeah, we'll like lean right into it without, sure. you know, kind of a rough transition, but tell me a little bit about your upbringing and I, I kind of, I actually, it's funny because you're my dad. And I'm asking you these questions on the podcast. And believe it or not, to people listening, is that there's a lot of these answers that I actually, all these questions I don't know the answer to. Hmm. Um, I just learned yesterday, I know that your, your, you know, grandma and grandpa got divorced. I didn't know when, and you told me when just a couple of days ago. So I didn't realize what a difficult age that was for you. But um, yeah, tell me a little bit about your upbringing in Simi Valley, California. All right, well, just... Just to clarify, it wasn't my grandparents. It was your grandparents. Right, my grandparents. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, his parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was about 13. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday. My mom got a phone call, and I remember her slamming her bedroom door, and all the thing I heard was, do you have proof of this? And I was about 13. That started on a, a journey towards their divorce, and my dad had uh, left us for another woman. But you know what? Prior to that, um, I would have said it was a very normal upbringing, um, but then looking back probably wasn't a whole lot of health to it Mm. Uh, my dad was wonderful in the sense of providing and being at the 8 a.m soccer game piling my entire travel basketball team into his motorhome things like that Um, but there was a lot of uh, walking on eggshells he's a very uptight man and stuff like that so it it just yeah um, 
being a pastor now, looking back, like my family came over in the days of Junipero Serra from Spain, and uh, they sent 100,000 missionaries way back in the day to stop the Protestants, basically, who took New England. And uh, my family was part of that. I ended up planting missions up and down the coast in Santa Barbara. In fact, my mom's side, my grandparents are buried under the altar at the Santa Barbara Mission. Mm. And on my dad's side, my great-grandfather was a medical doctor, and he's buried in the grounds right outside. So pretty rich Catholic history. I was the first one to protest, if you will. Mm. Um, but that came much later in life. But I had very little religious upbringing um, pretty much once my grandparents had done manipulating uh, my parents it pretty much ended yeah yeah all right so they they ended up splitting at like 13 or 14 now my brothers and i had the privilege of growing up with um their dad being one of the greatest storytellers of all time (laughs) (laughs) and so you you have some pretty funny stories and i'm trying to think of like what the best one to tell on the podcast is from your childhood, but all the malarkey that you did, all of the, the blowing up the guy's mailbox. <laughs> Who was that guy? You know, I think he's still alive, so I probably shouldn't say. He's, he's, he's absolutely a huge listener of the podcast. Okay, we'll, we'll call him the neighbor Bob. Would Bob be okay? Bob, Bob will uh, Bob, suffice. Bob would be fine. Bob was just a guy down the street, called the cops all the time, and um, some you know, friends moved in across the street from him. It was just, they were just troublemakers and their buddies would come over and from taking his scooter, you know, he'd lift the rear end of the scooter and it would shoot rocks and he would just wave the, the butt of his little Honda 50 scooter back and forth in Bob's front yard and shoot rocks everywhere. And we just tortured poor Bob. And (laughs) one day, I mean, M80's putting it lightly. This thing must've been like an M200. I don't even know. Somebody brought back from Mexico. And Is it fireworks? To, fireworks, yeah, yeah, sorry. And decided to blow Bob's mailbox up. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just in the middle of everything. I was just kind of a follower, but a rebel. I remember pieces of the mailbox blow, flying by my head as we ran. <laughs> Kaboom. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was one of those childhoods, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I oh, guess that's man. more of a reflection than a story, but it was something yeah. else. <laughs> yeah, and then tell me again about your... Um, your fight in middle school. You, you saw someone going through your locker. You just went up and socked him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? You, you got... <laughs> I forgot about that, son. Yeah, just you... so you know, if you <laughs> know this already, your sons, the three of us, we just relish these stories. And I remember we'd be sitting around the table, and I'm so glad you're such a good storyteller because you know we live in we lived in the jungle growing up, and you know all of the. The Dodger games that you know we had watched already, um, we only got a few from the season. We got them in like February. Those were all done. We don't have enough um, saved up electricity to to watch a movie or play video games, and so we'll just sit around the table, and and you just tell stories, and those are some of the greatest memories growing up because you know me and Michael and Matthew just sit there and just like stomach hurts from laughing at these <laughs> stories. <laughs> anyway, so I, I'm, I'm trying to remember all of the best ones, but you got to tell the one about, about punching that kid. <laughs> well, the, the, the best punch I ever had came later in life. We'll talk about that maybe, but I, I got to knock a guy out cold once. <laughs> yeah. But this one, you know, I, I didn't do so well after my dad left transitioning the junior high years, and I went from kind of a real – 
real popular, like in the fifth, sixth grade, I played travel ball. I did, you know, I was at the roller rink on Saturday, excuse me, Friday, Saturday nights. And, and it was like, and then I went into junior high after my dad left and my confidence tailspun. I, I remember backing down to a bully and that just tweaked me. And so one day this kid, he wasn't a bully and we had clashed a little bit before, but I remember I came back to my locker and he was in it and I was like, just wham, you know, I socked him and we went to the ground and I, I guess I kind of beat him up. And, wow. Uh, and then I went to his house and stole three of his bikes later that <laughs> night. <laughs> I was not raising a Christian. That's the most, that's the most <laughs> 1980s thing, by the way, <laughs> is, is, you, is you, you see this guy in your locker and then not only do you beat him up, but then you think, you know what? I'm going to go steal your bicycles because <laughs> that's just the most 1980s thing I've ever right? heard. Yeah. Is, it, is it true just the case like 1980s, everyone just lived by their bicycles? Oh, man, it was everything. It was our iPhone. It was our video games. I mean, we just went from house to house on bicycles. And, yeah. yeah. I've seen like the memes people like post on <laughs> Facebook of like how you knew where your friends were and it was like a pile of bicycles on someone's front That's yard. right. Yeah. yeah. Right on. I have an eight-year-old doesn't know how to ride a bike right now. It's pretty embarrassing. Your eight-year-old doesn't, <laughs> Rosa? I bought yeah. her one. I just got to put the training wheels on it, but it's just not part, you know, um, can't even let your kids outside anymore. It's yeah. just, you just, it's not the same world we live in. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. And those are some good stories. Am I missing <clears throat> any of the stories? Is there anyone that comes to your mind that you think that was an iconic one? You know what? My friends started driving earlier than me. And so it was almost like they, they drove around and we just looked for trouble. I remember we would get, bored and we would go hunting for sale signs in front of houses <laughs> and we would tackle the signs we'd hang on them we'd play football tackle them and we just would snap that sign off or knock it over i mean if you were a real estate agent in simi valley circa 1986 85 somewhere in there yeah i owe you one yeah oh my yeah. god that's what happens when your dad leaves and, and you know he had us under such pressure and then he left, and my mom um, did a fantastic job as a single mom. She really did. We're so close today. Shout, she, out to, she, shout out to Nancy. Shout out to Nancy. I love you, Mom. She's like the closest friend, Mom, everything I could ever imagine. Um, but she wanted a life, and so she'd yeah. start hanging out with people. She'd start dating again and going camping with singles groups and stuff, and, and it was just sheer terror. We just yeah. terrorized our neighborhood. I mean, I'd take her car. <laughs> I'm 14 years old, and she leaves her car. I jump in it and cruise. I mean, it was – I just. Did she know about that? She does now. Or she <laughs> no, one of the neighbors, uh, shout out to Lorraine, I love you too, but she ratted me out one day and I got busted. Wow, Lorraine, yeah. come on. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, it, what's, uh, what's really funny is that I, I grew up hearing these stories, obviously. We're in New Guinea, and then we moved back, and then years after we moved back, and I'm starting to try and get my life established, and I end up finding myself for only like two or three months working at a company that built and installed basketball courts and <laughs> i worked with a guy for a period of time and he was the concrete specialist and he was teaching me how to lay concrete and uh, you you know where this is going probably but um we were talking one time and and we were driving using a lot of time in the car and this guy is just sort of a nutcase and his name's willie and we're in the car we're talking and then he says yeah you know i used to have a childhood buddy that went on to be a police officer and he went on to be a missionary. And I'm like, man, he's just like telling the story of like my dad kind of, and he's about my dad's age. And I said, what was your, what was your friend's name? He says, Oh, Mike Cratch. And I was like, dude, that's my dad. <laughs> sure enough. That was one of the monsters that <laughs> you, you terrorized neighborhoods. It was Willie. We did. We did. I'm not going to say last name, but Willie was his first name. Yeah. You know, I'd love to buy Willie a beer to have a conversation. Maybe someday I'll track him down, but he was, he was, uh, 
he was he was like you know you you know by the grace of god eventually you know came to the lord and your life completely changed radically yeah his life went in an entire different direction um unfortunately and and yeah, we pray for willie but um yeah and it was sad his mom went in for basic back surgery and the doctor killed her and so you have this young guy, same age my dad left, his mom died, his dad tail spinned hard, and, and it was so sad to watch. But, you know, I'm sure Willie's got his issues in life, as do I, and I hope he does come to know Jesus, but uh, he came out of it okay. Yeah. Really considered, you know, hardworking guy, good for him. Yeah, and boy, was he a goofball, man. I remember we'd be, <laughs> we'd be like, in the uh, company truck. It's got, like, the company logo all over it, and someone cuts him off on the 405, and he's, you know, middle finger out the window. F you, you dumb, you idiot. <laughs> Flashing the brights through their through their, wind, or through their back window, like, 5 o'clock in the morning. So he came out all right, but he's still a psychopath. Yeah, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know him that well. But. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> in terms of, I know a lot more of what he went through, so I think he did okay by that, and I hope things work out well for him. But yeah, yeah, it was really, really rough on him. Yeah, yeah, he's an he's an interesting guy for yeah. sure. Much love to Willie. But all right, so you so your upbringing in Simi Valley, California. You you know Simi Valley has a way of sucking people in, keeping people there. Um, you know, you met my mom, your wife, in what third or third grade? Yeah, third grade. Um, in fact, the, the crazy part is, is uh, like I said, I was the man in mm-hmm. fifth and sixth grade. So. If there was recess, I was a team captain, whether it was kickball, basketball. I was just like three or four of us. It was just the, but I took a lot of crap because I kept picking this cute, um, pigtailed Jennifer Jocker um, to be on my soccer team or my kickball team or whatever it was. And I had a total crush on her. Yeah, all, all those years, so it was really, it was really cool. We ended up getting married. Uh, yeah, been married. Uh, be twenty eight years in August. And then, and then, yeah, twenty eight years in August. Shout out to you guys. Congrats. And then yeah. you had a spectacular son. <laughs> I did three yeah. of them. Yeah, and then I got to adopt three more. So there very you go. Blessed. Yeah, very uh, cool. Three more kids, one more son. Yeah. So, um, so you ended up. Correct me if I'm wrong. You dropped out of high school your freshman year, your sophomore year. Um, sophomore year. Sophomore year. Dropped out of high school. Um, you ended up still becoming a police officer though, which didn't realize could happen. Yeah, that is really rare. Um, but I dropped out and I was going to go in the army and then just, you have a choice of jobs, you know, I ended up getting a GED. It was horrible, but long story short, you had to mature and decide to set goals in life. Hmm. And once I set those goals, nothing was going to stop me in a sense. And so I had a GED, yes, but what a lot of people don't realize is generally equivalency diploma. One, that's bull. It's not equivalent. Mm-hmm. It's the easy it's the easy way out, but it does give you units towards a high school diploma. So I was a high school dropout with a GED, but I did graduate. Mm-hmm. I did go back and graduate. I just had to go to, you know, I was so driven, uh, working so hard. I went to night school and, and completed it. Um, and then when it came time, you know, I tested for the sheriff's department in L.A. Uh, as an intern. Actually, hundreds of people applied. I'm sure they hired a hundred something, but they actually called me and said you came out number two. I was like, number two? How did wow. that happen? Um so I worked as a as a law enforcement intern for the Malibu Sheriff's Station, working beach patrol, single guy, yeah, right out of high school, not a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did that for a year and then went into the Sheriff's Academy and became a deputy. Yeah. yeah. And you've got all sorts of stories about being a police officer. And and those yeah. stories are even better. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, we've heard plenty of those stories too. The one that comes to mind for me that I think I'm still scarred from is you were working the jail some guy tried to escape drop in the laundry suit and then shoot and then a a a broom pole went up his keister 
something like that. That's yeah. a bad day. You don't have to tell that whole story because it really is damaging. But <laughs> did I miss anything there? Uh, he he managed to throw himself into the trash can, and there's solid steel on top of the sally port. Like there's no way out. And he had to learn the hard way. So he shimmied up some ventilation thing, got to the top, and ultimately fell. It had to have been, I don't know, 25, 30 feet. And yeah, he had a steel mop rack that caught his sack in his fanny and just lit Oof. the man. Just and I had the privilege of going in the ambulance and and the lieutenant said he's a murder suspect he goes to surgery you go to surgery doesn't matter you don't leave his side uh, so it was quite an interesting thing and the worst part like six months later i see him come back into the jail and i go he's all healed up but they dropped the murder charge it was self-defense and now he's doing a year and a half for attempted escape and i'm like oh this poor fool <laughs> oh man what a uh, yeah but i left there i, I couldn't handle the jails and uh you know, a lot of what you hear today, oh, cops are racist, racist, this, racist. I, there's a problem there, um, but it's not racism. With all due respect, my grandfather, my family owned plantations in North Carolina. He was a true racist. Um, but what, what, you, what I experienced wasn't racism. It was the absolute um, frustration with a particular demographic that these cops are forced to live around and interact with daily. And they just get so disgusted with a particular demographic. And so, um, like, for example, one demographic they refer to as white trash. You can fill in the blanks on the other ones. I don't even want to go there. But it's not true racism. And I started to experience that. Like, wow, why am I feeling this way towards people? So I ended up leaving the sheriff's department and I went to Simi Valley Police Department. Uh, There's still an ounce of that, but but not near as much. It's pretty much my demographic. And if I'm frustrated with it, I'm frustrated with my own culture, not someone else's culture. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that, that that is an element for sure. Um, <clears throat> is that I don't think that a lot of I don't think the majority of police officers are racist, but I do think that there is a form of I don't want to say PTSD necessarily, but when you see, you know, a, a culture or a specific community, and you know, we're we're doing a real fine job of dancing around the word black, but yeah. you know, it could be black, you know, it could be Mexican, it could be Asian, white, it doesn't necessarily matter, but you know, I mean I'm sure it happens all the time in, in some of the you know, impoverished places of, of, you know, white communities in say Kentucky where, you know, yeah. there's just so much domestic violence and you just show up and you're just sick of it. And so, you know, it doesn't necessarily make it right. And, you know, I think that's always been like one of my pitches for a solution is that there just needs to be long-term sabbaticals and mental health protection for police officers, because, you know, I don't think they go into it with a prejudice or anything like that, but I certainly could see them coming out of it just from what they see and experience on their day-to-day job. I totally agree. I absolutely agree. I think the police academy, when I went through it, had just gotten extended to like 18 weeks or something. But I'm sorry, looking back, I entered the academy with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department at 19 and a half. When you graduate, you don't have to wait 15 days to get a gun, to buy a gun, if you get a letter from your captain, right? So quick story, yeah. sorry. I know we're already beyond this, but no, so I was so excited. I graduated the Sheriff's Academy. I was still 20. I went to the captain. I was assigned to the jail. I got the letter just to get a smaller off-duty weapon, and I took it in ready to get my gun, and the guy goes, sorry, man. The federal law says you got to be 21. I don't care if you have a badge. You're not old enough to buy a gun. I was like, what? It's kind of funny to look back on, but the bottom line is that's that's a major major issue. Now I didn't make a mess of my career until I was twenty four, but it's way too young to have that much authority. Mm-hmm. I would I would make it twenty five to thirty, or maybe twenty five with a bachelor's mm-hmm. degree, because maturity is a huge issue in law enforcement. I was so immature and so arrogant. Um, and the second is they got to extend this academy. You you need to graduate with the ability to use jujitsu or something to mm-hmm. manipulate pain control and not swing a stick. 
yeah. or shoot a gun. Um, even this day, like there was one that was justified, real recent shooting where the guy literally tried to drive away, but the cops probably would have taken a, a Chevy to the shin mm-hmm. and as, as he got knocked out of the way. And for that, the man died. And I was trained, I would have trained to shoot and kill that man for him driving that car at me. In retrospect, man, people have bad days. They're under the influence. Like, just because the car maybe was going to hit you doesn't mean you open fire. There's just so much more training-wise and slowing down. But at the same time, I'm so pro-cop. Yeah. Um, so pro-cop. As so, am I. But yeah, that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that we don't address the, exactly. the issues and try and find solutions. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah so there's there's a whole other discussion there. But for me, it was just uh, the immaturity. But going from one... You know, um, I worked at maximum security. He said, oh, the county intentionally puts Hispanic and black opposition in the same cell. And then just maybe a, another 20% of kind of your Aryan brotherhoods. But there, for some reason, they're all scared of them. Mm-hmm. And the tension in the cell kept the pressure off the deputies. Yeah. So if you ever put all Hispanics in a cell, they will fall in line and they will attack us. So you just get so – everything is racist in the jails. Yeah. Everything's driven by race, and it pick, the cops pick up on it. Everyone, it's just a, it's a really, really sad thing. I don't yeah. think there'll ever be a true solution. Hmm. But Yeah, I think, like, you know, it's important to – I, I, I like the idea a lot, actually, of extending the training and making it, you know, more detailed and specific. I don't really know yeah. what goes into the training. But another element, too, is continuous training um, and continuous. Like, even for my job, like, once a month we have to go un- undergo one seminar, and often it's just related to – you know, you know yeah. dealing with family dynamics or yeah. you know, how to properly discharge a patient, something like that. But, yeah. I mean, you can look at, you know, how often do you see just a morbidly obese police officer because all he does is sit in his car, drink Mountain Dew, and eat donuts all day. Yeah. You know, in the same way that that guy needs to be constantly trained and make sure that his body's in top physical shape and, and not be a fat slob police officer. Yeah, yeah. Um, their mental, you know, the mental capacity to be a police officer needs to be constantly monitored and challenged. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. they need to be handed, you know, monthly sabbaticals or something like that every few months just to make sure that they are sane yeah. enough to yeah. hold and, a weapon in, in those circumstances. Because I, <clears throat> you know, like there's been a lot of racial tension going through the last year and, you know, I think of situations like George Floyd and and uh, Jacob Blake. I think his name was, mm-hmm. and all tragic all tragic situations. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, some of them, you know, we could go back and forth all day whether or not they should have happened, shouldn't have happened. Um, one ultimate thing that, like I always say, is that each one of those things started with someone resisting a police officer. Yeah, and and so it's one of those. Very strange to the line, like, you know, I, I think George Floyd's death was absolutely wrongful, and I think the police officer did a really bad job, but you look into the history of of that police officer, he's had multiple complaints. Absolutely. He's been the force for a long time, and it has become very clear to me that, like, his mental capacity to be a police officer hasn't been challenged in a long time, and he hasn't been managed in that way. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, can, like... Definitely longer training for police academies, but also continuous training to make sure that they're still fit for that position because I think people can become unfit for that very easily. Yeah, and um, I totally agree. And, you know, for that to go on for several minutes, was it eight or nine minutes? I'm sorry, I'm all out of the loop there. Man, it's such a calloused heart. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not a racist heart, it's a calloused heart. And I remember when I was a sheriff's deputy, I was just on training because I was with my – my training officer at the time, and we walked into the locker room after ship, and there's this great big deputy, big guy, and he's banging on the locker. He's so mad. I'm like, 
was kind of intimidated. I'm like, dude, what's up? And he kept saying, he gave me a green light. He gave me a green light, and I didn't bust his nut. And it took me a few minutes to figure out. And it was a little Hispanic gang member that maybe he pinned against the wall, probably dang near dislocated the guy's arm. And what he was saying is that little twerp gave me the green light to take my flashlight and crush his testicles, and I didn't do it. And he's beating on the locker mad because he missed an opportunity to destroy this human being. And there's something that was a, and he went on to work uh, Lennox, L.A. County Sheriff's Department. I know his name. I just won't use it. For all I know, he's the stinking lieutenant down there. And what's yeah. the point? But that's the mentality. He was mad because he had a chance to destroy this guy and didn't. Mm-hmm. That that uh, that's probably part of what I look back on. I got to get out of here. Yeah, I got to get out of here. And I went and worked the courts for a year. And how many times can you see a, in Malibu? Like what a radical change that was. And then ultimately, yeah. I, I had an opportunity to go to my hometown, and that's what I did. Yeah, but. Well, let's fast forward to, to going into your hometown, Simi Valley. Yeah. You got some pretty incredible stories there. And you were only a police officer for Simi PD for, what, three years? Uh, I was in my third year when I was actually indicted on corruption charges. <laughs> oh, yeah. right. well, we'll get there in a minute. Sure. But <clears throat> let's talk about, there's two stories in particular that you are <laughs> so great at telling. And now the first one I want you to tell is the lady that stabbed herself in the knee. Oh, my gosh. Had that I rare condition that. of split personality disorder. Yeah. Um, you tell that story pretty well. I'd love just to hear you hear you do your thing. Tell that story for me. Well, I, I'd, and I've heard this story probably eighty five <laughs> times, and it never never loses its its you know. Yeah, it's experience. weird because it theologically it, it it fits too, and I'll comment on that maybe later. But I was a rookie officer, um, but on my own maybe four or five months. And there's a couple places in my hometown. I won't mention the street, but where. The 100 block and the street name crosses and it's the same, right? So you might have Adam Street and Adam Road and let's say they're both in the 5600 block. Well, as a police officer, and this is before your computer told you where to go, we literally check Thomas guys. I'd pull over with my lights on, check where the address is, and then take off to get there. Well, uh, I, I made the correct turn and went to the correct house. And um, as it turned out, let me back up, sorry. Got to call the dispatcher, respond code three. There's a psychiatrist on the line, uh, code three is lights and sirens, mm-hmm. who has a split personality patient who is holding her own daughter at knife point and is struggling to control the second personality, which wants to kill the daughter. Wow. So, like I said, it was a really confusing address. I got there and made the right turn, and it, the street kind of curved, so they didn't see my police car. And all of my backup made the left-hand turn and went to the other street with the same name and the same 100 block. But I remember running up to the to the front porch, and the door flung open. I, remember, I don't even remember pulling out my gun. Next thing you know, it was. And sure enough, there was this lady, and uh, she had her, her little daughter, little blonde daughter, uh, around the throat with a steak knife. Um, and she had it high, and she lowered it. When she lowered it, she lowered it right into her own thigh. And I remember just hearing that kind of like a thud, almost like if you were going to pop an Italian sausage before you put it in the microwave just that, the sound of that knife yeah. penetrating and the blood coming out and she'd raise it and I, I remember cocking my gun because I had I had a clear shot at her head and I um, and she just kept stabbing herself and you could just see this rage and fear battling back and forth with this woman with split personalities and, and on the radio I hear him yelling at me where are you where are you because I, I put it out I got her one at gunpoint need assistance like, I'm a rookie, so I'm not exactly calm, cool, and collective. Um, and I remember holding her, and I remember thinking to myself, I cocked the gun, even though I wasn't trained to do it. I figured I had one more split second um, um, with the semi-automatic Beretta that I could, you know. And I knew I knew, I, I knew, I had to shoot her in the head. Um, 
So I just held my gun and the angle of it, you don't want to get too close in a lot of situations, but the angle was such where her only hand to get to me would have been the hand with the knife. And so in a sense, I remember thinking, well, if she reaches for the gun, like I was that close, she'd have to drop the knife. Yeah. Um, and I just was just screaming at her, typical cop jargon, put the effing thing down, I'm going to kill you. And then I would switch back and forth, don't do this, don't do this. Like, and I'm screaming on the radio, where is everybody? Well, one sergeant, uh, shout out to Gary Collins. I think he retired and wrote a book, but um, he came out of nowhere. And I remember just seeing his arm grab that knife, and down we went. And it was, uh, mm-hmm. it was such a relief. So the story gets even crazier. Calmed her down, and as soon as we tackled her, put her in handcuffs, she snapped out of it, started crying. She was apologizing. I'm fine now. My doctor's going to meet me at the hospital. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Very, very normal. Well, a different sergeant. I won't use his name. <laughs> mm-hmm. Says, man, you got it's your call, Mike. You take her on a 5150, which is obviously a, a mental health evaluation. My authority, no, no court, no nothing. You just put lock them up until a psychiatrist. Well, this other supervisor shows up, says, ride with her, and we'll have another unit come pick you up at the neighboring city hospital. So she asked to take the handcuffs off. I basically said, no. Well, the sergeant said, yeah, go ahead. She's fine. Take the handcuffs off. I'm like, really, dude? Mm-hmm. So I took the handcuffs off. She's sweet as pie. We're riding in the ambulance. And all of a sudden, she's looking at Nelson. She just, I'll kind of emulate it. I know I'm not on video. Boom, her head just jerks to the left. And mm. look in her eyes. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> and she starts ripping open all these medical things, trying to find needles. And I'm like, trying to get the driver's attention. But he ain't listening. So I'm on the radio telling the dispatcher, tell the ambulance to pull over and start back up code three. Here we go again. Um and, and finally, I remember I pull out my gun. Once again, I think I pulled out my stick, too. I don't think I hit her. but <laughs> yeah. And I threw the handcuffs, and I threatened her. I said, if you don't put these handcuffs on, I'm going to beat you or shoot you. And uh, she did her thing, and, and she ended up putting them on and then pulled her out of the gurney, and she flipped it over and broke her. I mean, it was just a horrible, yeah. horrible thing. But, you know, I mean, fast-forwarding, and there's times in my life where I think I'm, you know— I'm sharing my faith and I'm worshiping the Lord. And then like five minutes later, I'm rocking out to you rock me all night long by ACDC. And I kind of go, wait a minute. What is I know nothing, it's a little bit different, a little bit different, yeah. but um, yeah, it was, it was sad. I hope she got help and I hope she's doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> was, you know, it seemed to be a cop's getting a reputation. Well, you guys don't ever, and it's true. Like I probably made less than three years, less than 10 felony arrests. Hmm. Where there's cops in LA, I'll make 10 a month, no problem. Yeah. Right. Like it's not, but there's that level of, um, you know, I've picked up bodies off of train tracks. I've, I've mm. you know, I've done things that were just, it still messes with your head. Yeah. The way you look at it. It's a very intense job. So. Yeah, that's all happened only in three years. Yeah. That's 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 what crazy <clears throat> is that, like, you'd think that, like, that's like a, and maybe it is, you know, you just happen to be lucky, but, like, a once-in-a-lifetime career of being a police officer type event to happen. But you have that event and a handful of others that are, like, all within a three-year span. I mean, yeah. yeah, there's no discount. In fact, that police officers have very intense jobs and yeah. may look like just a lot of eating donuts and and giving you speeding tickets. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's quite the uh, quite the gig for yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I want to be police officer for a long time, and I'm kind of glad I'm not because of so just the <laughs> atmosphere of what it yeah. is. But um, yeah, it's just nuts and. So the next story, and probably the last one I'll have you tell, because we got a lot of other stuff I want to cover here. Now, this story is easily the best story, <laughs> and it's my favorite story that you've ever told. And it is a bummer that we're not doing this on video podcast, because 
the way that you tell the story is just so good. So you got to really bring it for the podcast uh, because I wish that, you know, we could, uh, you know, and I might even just whip up my phone and just do this right here. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Because I just, it's, it's the, just the best, but it's the you, you, thing. you already know what story I'm oh. telling and you got to make sure that you get the whole thing. I'll do my best. With the, the car being full of people. Like, oh, you, you know, you know, you gotta, you gotta really bring it because this is, all right. All right. So you already know what story this is. I don't even need to remind <laughs> you, but go for it. All right. Well, I had a, uh, I was around by myself. I don't know. It's probably 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I see this car load full of people. And I'm thinking, it reminded me of something you'd see like in an old um, At The Hop movie from the 50s or 60s. Like there's got to be 12 people piled in this four-door sedan. I'm like, I thought it was funny, but I'm like, I got to yeah. pull them over. What in the world? So I pull them over and I don't even get out of my car yet. And this great big guy, I don't mean it. Plops out the window, slam right onto the ground. Literally falls out. Literally falls out, and, and he was a big guy. So, and and I'm glad because I end up chasing. But anyway, I'm like, dude, really? I'm trying not to laugh, and I walk up, and he just gets up and starts walking away. And I'm like, hey, excuse me, come back here. He kept going. So I remember calling my buddy. Um, shout out to Matt Hopkins. I don't think he'll ever listen to this, but oh, he's a huge listener. Of this yeah, podcast. sure. Um, anyway, listener. so shout out to Matt Hopkins. Yeah, we were we were kind of best of friends back in the day. Um, but anyway, so I get his call for back. I'm like, dude, deal with the car. So now I'm mad, and that's another issue in law enforcement. You piss off a cop. We call it contempt a cop, and, and they're going to want to beat you up. <laughs> that's let's not go back there. But I'm yelling at him, get back here. And um, he's walking towards a gas station, and it had been raining, I think. And all of a sudden, he just starts running. Well, I'm like. Pfft. You know, so I take I chase after him. Now, mind you, I'm like 23, but I was, a, you know, packing a half a day smoker. I was totally out of shape from the academy. Um, so I'm chasing this guy. I had a really bad habit of throwing my baton at people. <laughs> <laughs> so we get to the gas station. I'm already winded. Now I'm mad. So I remember taking my baton. Of course, these are the old ones where it has the, the handle separate from the straight stick. And so I reared back and I threw it at him. And at the same time I threw it, I slipped in some oil in the gas station. And I go flying. I was slamming down on my knee. I ended up getting like four stitches. Um, and the baton goes flying right at him. But somehow... It like scissored between his legs. So his legs are running and it, the baton at the exact moment this kid runs, it flips it. And so I'm falling to the ground and I'm watching this baton go flying through the air. And I kid you not, AM, PM, Madera, LA, it hung, <laughs> it hung in a palm tree. And so I'm running by, I'm looking at my baton. I get back up. Now I'm really mad. Well, this guy, by now he's, he's heading to old, old, old LA Avenue, West LA Avenue. Um, and I get back up and, and I'm running and I'm chasing this guy. And I know it's probably a good 75, 100 yards. Well, he's a big guy. I mean, yeah. and I'm out of shape, but now I'm mad. So I finally catch up to him. Both of us are so winded, and I just grab him from behind. He just, boom, and I just pushed him, and he just totally laid out. <laughs> and he's going to try and resist a little bit, I guess. And I figure I got one thing in me and one thing only. And he turns over and starts to get up, and I just reared back with everything I had. Wham! And I just popped him right in the nose. And poof! <laughs> he just went out, boom. And he just laid there. And my friend Matt rolls up. And I think, sorry, I tried to laugh in your microphone. I think, honestly, between this guy, he's out. I'm so exhausted. And my friend Matt is standing there laughing his, his butt off. <laughs> out of shape cop who just knocked out this chubby kid who fell out of the car window. I mean, if that's not an exclamation point on CMEpedia, I don't know what is. 
Turned out he's wanted for assault out of Malibu, and I ended up calling one of the guys I used to work with in Malibu and kind of came out to hear with this story. But, uh, uh, yeah, it was one of the funniest things. I'll never forget that. Oh, I know Mason man. just loves that story. Oh, that's my story. <laughs> any any chance I get, if we got company over or whatever, I mean, I can't wait for when Haven's and Lennon's old enough to make you tell them that story. Yeah. <laughs> What's so funny to me is that like, I have no, I mean, I've got my own life experiences to share with my kids, but, like, I've never lifted a hand to anyone. I've never punched anything. I've <laughs> I've punched a train ticket before. It's about it. Yeah. I've never punched a soul. And it was just it was just funny to me because I just got, like, you know, I think everyone else in our family, as far as me and, and my brothers go, has been in a fist fight, and I, I have not. Yeah, I'm probably the most mild mannered of, of us three. <laughs> yeah, well, honestly, that was one of the few times. I mean, as a cop, you're always grappling, for lack of a better word. You're always mm-hmm. have a guy who pulls away because he wants an explanation of the arrest more than he wants to fight you. So what do you do? You tackle him. Yeah. You know, um, I pulled over a, a drunk driver once who kind of pushed off and ran. I chased that guy so far and lost him, looked all night, and I found him in the McDonald's parking lot. Um, and I just went up to him and pretty much just beat him up. I just grabbed him, spun him around, slammed his head off the concrete, put him in handcuffs. And everyone at McDonald's was like clapping. You know, like that was just the, he didn't really resist. He had just run from me. And yeah. so in my mind, he was going to resist again. And I, when I say beat him up, I mean, I didn't yeah. sit there and box him, but I, you know, um, yeah. I, I, anyway, it's a different mentality. But I, I, since I left law enforcement, of course, I've never, I've been. Yeah. I, I wouldn't even know what to do, honestly, these days. <laughs> yeah. So, so obviously you're not a police officer now. And that's, no. like, that's a darn good thing. Darn good thing. Um, and even though the stories are really cool, and then even though, you know, um, you know, back to blue, man, I, I think police officers are great. I know that there's a lot of, you know, dilemmas there, but yeah. I'm glad you're not a police officer for a lot of reasons. But um, there's one element of your story that I think I actually find more fascinating than you. And maybe because, you know, um, it's more than I like to think that this is what happened, but maybe didn't. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, cause I really don't know the whole story super well, but obviously you're not a police officer now. And we'll get into that in a little bit as to, you know, you got in a little bit of trouble, Yeah. but at one point in your career, you know, we're backing up three years or so now you are working it for LA County Sheriff department and you have like a psychic party mm. right no the psychic party was after i was yes i'm sorry yes, yeah it so was there was correct. the envelope yes. person right yeah, yeah. If i'm wrong oh the envelope yes i so, was thinking of something else so yeah. I, you know i have been asked for like a really detailed testimony for my life and i've actually gone as far as this i went as far as the envelope person and i don't think that anybody you might not see eye to eye with me mm-hmm. and i think it's because you're a little bit l- less charismatic towards these things than I am as far as just the demonic realm and and how everything works together. But regardless, you know, I'm going to try and tell the story. I want you to correct me. Okay. Okay. So you're a police officer for LA County, probably what 21, 20 at this point, young guy, Mm -hmm. and you go to a party and there's a psychic present. And at this time you're considering moving to Simi Valley police department or staying in, staying in LA County Sheriff's department. Um, Anyways, one thing happens another. You put your question. The whole idea is that everyone writes a question and puts it in the envelope. Right. Um, and so you write your question, should I stay with LA County Sheriff's Department or move to CMEPD? 
So this psychic rattles off a few answers and he comes to yours and he picks up this envelope and he's waving it by his ear. He's not even open. He's just waving it by his ear. And he says, you know, I see like a gumball machine or a barber pole. And he said, no, I see sirens. We have a police officer in the room and you're not dressed as a police officer, obviously. No. Um, So immediately everyone's like, you know, jaw dropped, right? This guy didn't even open the envelope. Clearly, he's tapping into some sort of demonic thing that we can't really fathom or understand. And from around the room, he sort of spins, points the envelope at you and says, stay in L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Did I miss anything there? Or was that pretty much it? No, that's actually pretty accurate. Okay. The, the only thing, um, the, the spin around part, I, I don't know. Okay. That, no, that's just it, adding dr- dramatic effect. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah, we sat around. We went to a, a hairdresser. Uh, place that she was just hosting it. You paid 20 bucks and the guy claimed to have an African-American uh, slave that died in the Civil War that sat on his shoulder and made him clairvoyant, made him a psychic. Um, and so you pay your 20 bucks, you write your question on a piece of paper, like you said, you put it in a sealed envelope, throw it in a basket, and he randomly pulls him out. And uh, the rest of the story, you absolutely nailed it. So he didn't actually open the envelope? Never even opened it. Gotcha. And you and you wrote it in private. I mean, there's no way this guy knew. No, and there's 30 people there. Yeah. And there was a mixed up basket, and he would reach in almost like you see him draw lottery tickets at a fundraiser or something, you know, yeah. or raffle tickets, and pulled it out. And um, at first I was like, what? Gumball machine, barber pole. And he goes, oh, it's a siren. There's a copy. I, honestly, I flipped out. Again, I had some, very little at that point, uh, religious exposure. Mm-hmm. But to me, that was a, a significantly spiritual event mm-hmm. that I look back on now in the same light that you are. No, it's dark. It's yeah. There's this idea of psychic. There's there's a certain element of truth to it. I mean, Maybe another time, but I'd love to discuss UFOs sometime, but I spiritualize all that stuff. Um, it's funny you say UFOs because right. I, I know we're going a different direction, but UFOs is a really popular booming thing right now. Know, a lot of people what... associate UFO with alien when UFO literally stands for unidentified flying object, so it literally could be anything. Yeah, but I, I can tell you we were going with that, and we're not going to go into that discussion because we've got too much other stuff to talk about. Totally, yeah. But I think what UFOs are is something demonic happening that is uh, trickery, absolutely. That's what I think, but yeah, yeah, you're seeing light react to entering basically the other realm, would be my and it's anyway, let's go there another time, yeah, but yeah. So, looking back on it at the time, I was giddy, but looking back on it, um, you know, gosh, as a Christian, I don't hold to predestination and election i'm not a calvinist um but boy do i i hold to a sovereign god had i stayed in la even the even the event that lost my career there was deputy district attorneys there was sergeants with lapd and they all got slapped on the hands mm-hmm. and went back to their jobs and if i had stayed out there i don't know what god would have had in store for me so in other words just like let history take its course and and come out here because the guy basically told me to stay in la and i didn't take his advice yeah um, and I Which consider that some... part of part of my journey to Christ, actually. Yeah, and that that's why I say that I consider a, a mic like the very beginning of my testimony because the way that you have the way that I understand who you were as a person back then, you know, you were a very arrogant, prideful person. So much so, and there's the examples right there. You're an arrogant, you're an arrogant and prideful person. So much so that this complete stranger suddenly, you know, this psychic vision he has tells you to stay in L.A. and you don't stay in L.A. <laughs> Yeah, right? you were just like, oh, this guy can show that I'm going to see me anyway. Yeah. Years later, and I know you, you know, you don't necessarily believe in the predestined stuff, and most for the most part, I don't either. But I, I do wonder, and my mind wonders that if somehow that tapped into knowing that one day, you know, you're going to screw up, 
You're going to yeah. lose your job at CMEPD. Be humbled to this point and broken down to this point that you would actually come to know Jesus and impact people in the future the way that you have. Yeah. I actually, I do, cons- I consider, I, someone asked me again, I only told it that way once, but I was asked my testimony a long time ago, and I actually talked about that because I wonder who would I be now because yeah. I think I was born when you got fired from CMEPD, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or resigned, excuse me. And so anyway, so I, actually, I think about that now. I think that's like kind of a gnarly story and yeah. and whatnot. So anyways, fast forward from there, maybe about three and a half years later or so, yeah. um, you get indicted on corruption charges for a pyramid scheme of some kind. Yeah. You explained it to me before. And I don't fully understand, and I'm not going to ask you to explain it to me again, but essentially you got into some corruption issues, yeah. and uh, you ended up, you know, um, you know, pleading and getting a misdemeanor, but long story short, turned in the badge and the gun, you were done. Yep. And yep. Um, it's probably for the best. Yeah, no, I, I think it is. There's, <laughs> like right now, all of my guys that were hired after me are, are retiring, you know, with huge 80-year pensions, full bendies, health for life buying ranches all over montana second homes here there you know and here i am i think i'll get 2300 bucks from my investments when i turn 73 um you know i don't have much of a pension so there's things like that where i go oh man but on the other side of things that i you know i i do believe it helped mold what i was supposed to be i yeah. think if i would have stayed on i would have been a typical you know arrogant wife cheat on your wife um just there's a stigma there that very yeah. few have the maturity to avoid, and I probably didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a good thing looking back, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and I love where, you know, your life led to. You know, I think that, um, you know, there's earthly things that you may have missed out on, but I think that there is heavenly rewards that you reap for time you spent outside of being a police officer. And, um, you know, so let's, yeah. let's dive into that a little bit. So, yeah. You're no longer a police officer. You you know you, you get to a new nine to five. You're installing screen doors, right? Is that sort of the next gig you had after being a police officer? Immediately, in fact, the writing was on the wall. Um, all the guys in LA were getting their jobs back, or getting suspensions, but we didn't have binding arbitration in CME. And um, in a long story short, an officer about a year before was indicted on perjury charges and acquitted, and the DA was ticked, and there's no way I was getting off easy. But so I. Resigned, no, my, my lawyer said this is a nothing burger as far as jail or anything. It's just going to cost you your career. And at any rate, um, I, I was kind of okay with that. I just, you know, moving on. So I actually, while I was on suspension, I, I bought a franchise uh, learning to do window screens and screen doors. So nine to five, no. <laughs> I wish it was a lot more work, but I was able to build a business. And financially, I started making more money than I did as a cop. Able to buy a home up in the bridal path and do some things. But. Uh, yeah, it was just, uh, it was my trade now. That's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, ironically, apparently, and I just learned this last night or the night before, um, even after all of that, even after you didn't stay in LA and listen to the psychic, you find yourself at another psychic party. <laughs> I hosted this one. You hosted this I hosted one. This one was so at my house. Yeah. Talk about not learning your lesson. You hosted this one. Mm-hmm. And who did you invite? But Dave Roeder. Shout, Shout out to Dave, Dave Roeder. Roeder. <laughs> Shout out to Josh Roeder. Um, and the whole Rotor team, but Dave Rotor ends up leading you to Jesus and yeah. inviting you to church at Cornerstone, um, yeah. home of Francis Chan. Um, shout out to Francis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, basically, um, I started attending what used to be my wife's childhood church. 
But it was, uh, I mean, if you like liturgy, it's the place for you. But they were not proclaiming the message of the need for salvation. Um, so both my wife and I, she would tell you, she came to faith despite having a background in church at the same time I did. But yeah, I mentioned my friend David playing softball together. I was having a psychic party. He was a newer believer and he flipped out. And then, you know, my pride, his pride, um, we kind of argued about things. But I knew nothing. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing what I was talking about. But they ended up inviting us to our kids, in fact, you and your old brother Michael, mom was pregnant with Matt, to a VBS at their church. And so at the end of the week, we're like, hey, their pizza party in a bouncy. We get it. We'll go. And I met some of the guys. I knew a couple of them from softball. And they said, hey, why don't you come here to church on Sunday? And like, I felt obligated. So we went and um, there was a traveling duet there. Um, Flowers for Zoe. I think the, I think the gentleman in that group passed away, but they sang the song, It Is Well With My Soul, <clears throat> and told the story of how the author, Stafford Spafford, I'm missing his name right now, lost kids at sea, and, and he, anyway, I'll fast forward, take up too much time, but they had lost a child, and it really hit me, but it was the music they sang more than the clarity of the gospel, I don't, and so Dave and those friends, they said, hey, you want to go to a concert tonight, and um, it was the music, and again, I was 27 years old at this point, and I can honestly say I'd never heard the gospel. I never had anybody witness to me. Like, I was just oblivious, except for Dave Roeder. Um, <clears throat> and so it ended up, what he was inviting me to was a Harvest Crusade at Anaheim Stadium. And I was there that, you know, I asked Jesus into my heart for the first time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I did probably ten times, because there's no, there's, I love his evangelism ministry and his ability, but that's, that's not the biblical message, and it led to a lot of confusion for me, which mm-hmm. drove me to seek deeper truth. But that's neither here nor there. God used great glory um, and John fourteen six to get my attention. Mm. And I was on a new journey. And then it was after that where Dave and the Spirit of God, and Dave was helping out at another small church, but he knew where I needed to be. I did not need to be involved in what he was trying to accomplish at that little church that had the VBS. So he took us to Cornerstone, and uh, that's where we, we jumped in. I mean, we weren't, we weren't one of those Christians that they write books about going, well, gee, are they really saved? I mean, it... It was everything to me, um, <clears throat> and uh, so we engaged in there and did some men's ministry and um, a couple challenges. You know, France at the time wasn't nothing like he is now as f- in terms of being a, you know, celebrity um, Christian speaker, but the church was blown up, and he was traveling, and you'd have guest speakers come, and one of them came, and the guy had spent 20 years in the jungles of New Guinea, and he read these letters. <clears throat> were so powerful and I had such a bone to pick even with some former CMPD officers who would later hear me speaking in church and and basically say I was a Christian I'm like well were you just a silent one or what like why yeah. why what is it with the world that no one will say anything it was just the oddest thing for me now I get it because I enjoy evangelism but you just don't walk up to strangers or people in tragedy and go oh not only are you losing your job and you're and you're going to go to jail and you'll never be a cop again but you're going to hell like who can do that so I get it but I still had this this mental bone to pick with the unwillingness of people to speak and then the audacity of a church to put a robe on a man and a staff in his hand. And my wife was an acolyte girl, or whatever they call him, up and down the aisle, sing the songs, but never, never proclaim the message. Like I still, yeah. I just can't get over that. The first time somebody ever calls me reverend or tells me to put a suit on, I'm going to throat punch him. It's just, yeah. I'm a preacher, I'm a teacher, and they didn't have that. And so this message of these people in New Guinea, and they were buying into bogus messages. They were buying into this, but they'd never heard, and there was actually a waiting list to hear about it. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, it, you know, it, and uh, so I remember challenging my wife. We went back and forth, and we decided to do it. And obviously, you know, 
was brilliant that it was a four-year training program because we were nowhere near. I mean, honestly, if how would even a, a one-year-old believer um, have the discerning abilities to even discern? And I don't really like the term, but I'll use it because it's a biblical one. It's just misunderstood. But how do you even discern the call on your life mm. at that time at a year old? Um, now, I, I can tell you about it if you want, about how kind of God affirmed that for us. But it sent us on a four-year journey and two years of Bible education and some cross-cultural ministry and linguistics. And here I was, this dropout, high school GED kind of guy, and now I had a bachelor's degree. I was very proud of that. Mm. And, uh, and then we left, and we you know, we spent a few years. As you know, your story kicks into the narrative here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's basically how, how I, you know, it was really, though, in Bible school where I learned the gospel from the narrative. And what I mean by that is like, well, you could read Romans 3.24, we're justified freely by the grace through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, etc. And you can go to James 2 and you can go, well, faith without works is dead. Okay. But when you go into the narrative, like you take the Passover story, there's no moral compass put on those people. You trust the blood of the lamb, you enter the room and you would be passed over. And it was stories like that. And then Jesus is our Passover lamb. Like so many of this, of the powerful stories, um, call them redemptive analogies, really did set things in motion to clearly understand. And then I got it into my head that I could convince anybody, right? And again, not to, to hammer on it and let the theologians keep it up, because I really, if you keep your gospel clean, I couldn't care less if God chose them, they chose God, like let it work out in the end. But this this unwillingness of people to open their mouth or unwillingness to go or unwillingness to see the need and all of it fell back on that they weren't called or they... You know, but yet I, mm. I just see the resources being piled into the American church. Like it was just such a, I don't know, a difficult, challenging time. Mm. But I, I just, I went because I was challenged and it seemed like the right thing to do. But yeah, yeah. So you've always been a man of conviction, that's for sure. And I think that you are, you know, a poster child for someone that is challengeable mm. and teachable, but challengeable. And you're a man of conviction. And I like that about you a lot, but. Yeah. So the man that went to the church, Brad Buser, right? Yeah. That's who it was? <laughs> Brad Buser. Yeah. And the Busers are everywhere if you're listening and you are affiliated in any capacity with New Tribes or Ethnos 360. You know what a Buser is. <laughs> um, in fact, Becca's best friend, Gabby, they're partners with a Buser in New Guinea. Awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to say... Buzz, maybe? Uh, Buzz only, user, yeah. The only one I don't know, I know Brooks and Brandon, and I work kind of with those guys, and they are. They are like yeah. the A-team. They are amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so, Buser shows up. He inspires you guys. He calls you, challenges you. And you guys sit down. You just make the decision. You're going to Jackson, Michigan, and yeah. you're going to embark on the same organization that Brad was affiliated with, which is, at the time, New Tribe's mission. Um, ironically, Jackson, Michigan is where you'd go. I would later meet my wife there on my own journey there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so cool. uh, how long were you a believer before you made that decision to go? Because uh, when... you mentioned you were 27 when you got invited to church. Yeah. You went to the Harvest Crusades. So you were 27. When did you actually show up on campus at? I think I was 29. 29. 29. So a couple of years. That's not bad. Yeah, not bad. It took... You got to apply to the school. You got to, you know, we had a home to sell. We had just bought a couple of years ago, but, you know, um, we, we were very fortunate in that when Francis invited Brad to come, and a lot of people criticize him for it later, and I, I haven't had a chance to talk to him in years, but I'd love to, to get his take on it someday. But 
he said, we're going we're gonna to fund you completely. You're not going to have to go around the country raising money. And I had no idea that that was an anomaly. I just knew that, okay, our church is going to fund us, and we're going to be like an extension of the church. And um, so we actually left on, on like basically on payroll in a sense, you yeah. know. Um, but we showed up in Jackson, Michigan, and it was absolutely just life-changing. Yeah. Life-changing, uh, getting a biblical education. And, of course, it's a missionary training ground, so worldview is huge. And we were taught the scriptures from the scriptures. So the first class was in Pentateuch, and you, right before you graduate, you finish up Dan mm-hmm. Rev and Revelation together, and you put in the pieces. And whereas I've been to three different seminaries, and literally I could have taken Dan Rev my first semester. I could have taken some of these electives, and and that's no criticism of these seminaries. They're expecting you to have a degree when you get there. Yeah. But for so many guys, like I have friends that maybe they had a degree in psychologist, went into ministry, and never had the opportunity to let the narrative speak. Yeah. Um, and I'm so, so forever grateful for that, that the narrative spoke. When you see Adam reach for those fig leaves, when you see, um, you know, God told Cain that sin is right there, and understanding sin is a principle, and you have to master it, but yet there was no way that he could, and it was just, you know, putting those things in place and then seeing that sin mastery in your own struggles in your own mm-hmm. life. And it was just, a, I, would, I wouldn't change there's times I regret maybe going to New Guinea because some of the damage to the family and so forth, but I'll never, ever mutter the words that I regret the education I got there. I'm so grateful. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so fast forwarding a little bit then. Um, so four years with new tribes and you're, you're ready to go, yeah. essentially. Were there any other countries in mind or was it pretty much New Guinea? That's where Brad was. You guys yeah. seemed laser focused on that from the get-go, but were there any other countries that came to mind? You know, we briefly considered Venezuela. That would have been a big bummer. Yeah, because it would have closed down and I probably would have quit. But a couple of the reasons I didn't is New Guinea obviously has over 800 different languages Mm -hmm. and a horrible trade language. Horrible. I learned it in three and a half, four months. Yeah. I've Um, always said that that the New Guinea trade language is... And what, what you mean by horrible is that... It doesn't define things well. And, and so yeah. one massive element of the Bible is love. And there is not a single word for love in that language. Yeah. And trade language by its very word is a language that is used for trade. Right. So tribes trade with each other. In, uh, Indonesia comes down and they trade. So there's a trade language that everyone can kind of speak right. so that they can get the general necessities down. But what is so terrible about it is that it, it doesn't translate well enough. Like there is a... It's called Tokpisin, and there's a Tokpisin Bible, mm-hmm. but even that Bible is so bad at, at sharing the very important details, like the love of God, yeah. for instance, in it. So just to elaborate like what you mean too much, yeah. Yeah. I've, and I've always jokingly, <laughs> I've always jokingly said, because it is extremely easy to learn, I've always, always jokingly said that Tokpisin is like if two 12-year-old girls that call themselves BFFs decided to create a secret language for the two of them. Yeah. Because it's so close to English, and it's just a bunch of gibberish that yeah. it makes sense. <clears throat> but honestly, if I were to say a sentence and then break it down per syllable, you could almost pick up like what it means. Oh yeah, it's like yeah. it's pretty. <laughs> yeah, we, your mom and I use it when we don't want the kids, the you know, the younger kids to understand it, but they're already they're already picking up enough because it's so simple, the grammar structure and the words. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, anyway, so you chose New Guinea because you, you were inspired by the need. Um, the, the need, the train language. Like in Venezuela, they have Spanish. In the Philippines, Tagalog. Indonesia, they have, you know, uh, Indonesian. 
but there really, you know, really isn't a train language. 800, you know, I, I was, I'll be honest with you, I don't even think Venezuela was that serious. It was more of a fleeting thing. Mm. It was the letters that Brad had wrote mm. where they came in and, I don't know, quick story, okay? Yeah. Um, I read those letters and didn't memorize the names of who wrote them or what villages they were from, but I, I remember reading them several times. So we, you know, fast forward, finish the training, raise the support. We have coworkers. To, uh, shout out to Tim Shantair. He is the Kobe Bryant of tribal church planning. <laughs> uh, put him above even the Buzers because rest uh, in peace, Kobe. Uh, rest in peace, Kobe. Tim Shantair is still over there, and Buzer isn't. So I, I tip my hat to that man. Um, but at any rate, um, it was uh, the letters, and I got over there, and you're gonna enjoy this. I don't know if you remember this, but we moved into an existing work in the Sino Village. And uh, one day I found out from Lonnie, a very good friend of yours, that I don't know whether you realize it, but you did help lead him to the Lord. He told me that it was his, I think it was his dad who wrote those letters. So fast forward, we go home trying to get healthy with some medical issues, and I pulled out those letters to challenge the church. Um, let me back up one more step and get ahead of myself. When we got there, we wanted to plant a new work, but we didn't have enough coworkers, and leadership was really needed to fill in some holes, so we ended up joining a team that had lost a missionary which was the right decision. Um, and that was this, the Sino village of the Abao people in the upper Sepik province there. But So one of your childhood friends, really, your hunting buddy, mm-hmm. used to tell me that it was his dad who died before the missionaries ever got there. But I went home on furlough and I pulled those letters out and I sat stunned to realize that one of those letters was written from Sino. And I didn't make the connection. I moved into the village that I had been stirred to go to New Guinea because of that letter and come to find out you led this guy's son to the Lord. Like, that doesn't make me a charismatic, but it sure shuts my mouth when I think God's not moving outside of the text of Scripture. Like, that was so powerful the day I just sat there reading that, just stunned. Like, wow, we're the answer, part of the answer, at least, uh, to the letter that stirred us to go. So things like that. And then we'd have people. Uh, there's a village up there called Hidadila, and they would walk in, and they don't just drop off the letters. They, in their culture... They find someone who could read it. It's very shaky pigeon English, and they sit there in your face asking why they don't get a missionary, and it's just heart riveting. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But anyway, that was a powerful little side story to that whole thing. I did not know that. You didn't know Lonnie's dad wrote that letter? Uh-uh. Yeah. Wow. Nope. I remember. <laughs> I remember losing sleep at night because I remember having such love for Lonnie and Yafe. They were siblings. Yeah. Um, but knowing that. Lonnie was getting close to yeah. knowing Jesus, but also knowing that Lonnie's getting close to realizing that his dad is probably in hell. Yeah. Because because he didn't survive. He ended up basically what I imagine is he had a heart attack. I mean, mm. they start smoking when they're like eight years old. Yeah. And um, probably had a heart attack or something shut down on him and died um, chasing a pig in the jungle. From understand. But I remember yeah. losing sleep over the fact that my best friend would soon realized that his dad never knew Jesus and thus ended up in now. Yeah, is... yeah, that's that's a tough one to chew on and some, some theology there to, to just get discussed another day. It's, that's a tough truth, but it is what Romans teaches. Yeah. 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 But anyways, yeah. so fast forward to a little bit more lighthearted. So, yeah. um, so you choose New Guinea. I remember, I actually, this is where my, my earlier mem- memories kick in. I remember... Um, very vaguely, you and mom sitting us boys down and asking what we thought about that. That happened, right? Yep. Okay. And I remember thinking, yeah, I'm down, and just kind of like, you know, wanting to go to the next thing. And I remember you guys doing like an, I think they call it interface, where it's basically like you go out there to confirm that's the plan. 
right? Is, is that what it's called? Interface is a, is a college program to do just that. We just went and visited uh, New Guinea, and that yeah. was something. We went I'm to Hewa, right? We went to Hewa and Mariama. Mm-hmm. Um, That's and, the Woodards, uh, and then and the one Coffs. And Pei. Yeah. Oh, excuse me, not Pei. Pei wasn't open. Um, Pogwi. No. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to blank on the third village. But, yeah. Um, you know what? The, the church was blowing up. And there was one elder there who's really wise. Are we sure? Are we sure? There's a young, ki- young family, young kids. And I said, well, can I go check it out? And they, I mean, they must have paid ten grand for us to go and spend two weeks out there. And it was amazing. Hmm. Absolutely amazing. Um, and I was, I was sure that that's what I was going to do. We had to battle through a lot of doubt. You know, older brother Michael... A lot of allergies, and, and ultimately his you know his health was a big part of what changed the yeah. course of our direction. But um, yeah, it was it was amazing. Yeah, to get to do that. I remember I we stay with Grandma. Shout out to Nancy once again. Love you, Mom. Coming in clutch, and I remember she took us to the movies. Yeah, and she got us Reese's Pieces. <laughs> oh, she still tells about what maniacs you were. And I remember <laughs> just being like so crazed on Reese's uh, Pieces, and that's just from my perspective of that experience you were out in the jungle experiencing new guinea and i was staying with grandma nancy and eating reese's pieces and i remember the three of us were just too much for her i remember yeah. that and, and too much for grandpa larry and uh, i remember jesse being there the dog yeah. Yeah. yeah um so what was it like for you since now i'm a dad right yeah and one thing i've learned a lot about being a dad one thing I've learned is I bec- I have become very protective of Haven and Lennon's environment mm. um, in that I, when we take them places, I turn into like um, limitless man. Of my, I got my eyes on everybody. Yeah. I'm checking everyone's intentions. Yeah. I, I have like this hyper, hyper-focused instinct of protecting their environment and their bubble. Um, you know, we got some weird-looking folks out here where I live in and most of them are totally harmless and friendly and all that but there have been a time for instance where some you know some guy at the grocery store thinks it's okay to like you know come over and like you'll touch Haven's arm and say hey sweetie and for the most part it's harmless yeah but I don't like it yeah no, stay away from my kid and touch my kid <laughs> most of the time it's totally harmless I'm, I'm cordial and friendly but I'm hyper intensive about their environments I don't know if you can relate to that or feel the same way but um tell me about the anxiety and the stress of packing up your family and shipping them mm-hmm. off to New Guinea. What was that like, and how did you handle that? Because I remember the day we showed up, but I don't. Yeah. yeah. Well, to be honest with you, and this is kind of selfish, but I think the hardest part was saying goodbye to my mom. Mm. Shout out uh, to Nancy again. <laughs> right? We got to get Nancy on this podcast. <laughs> we do. I should try calling right now. I bet she'd answer. Um, it wouldn't be the first time I've called someone live on the podcast. <laughs> uh, you know what? I was so ready to go. I did the four years. I took that extra nine months um, raising money and getting my stuff, visas and all that nonsense. I was so ready to go. It was just dreading. In fact, you guys had a basketball game that night. We said goodbye in the parking lot. And I literally, I wasn't even at Rocky Peak yet, and I was crying. But I wasn't crying necessarily externally, but I was so glad that was over. Like, that goodbye was so, so hard on us. But that's honestly, other than that, I was more than ready to go. I, yeah. I was convinced I could convince the world that Jesus was their divine savior. Just give me a chance. I'll, I'll open up this book and I'll convince everybody. And and so the zeal to to do it uh, was very strong. And uh, I I had my family. I had my my kid, wife and kids on board, and and my mom would just have to adjust. And that's, you know, God did some things in her life too. And for maybe she'll talk about sometime, but. 
it was a that was the biggest stress of it <laughs> yeah 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 i remember i i very vaguely remember that goodbye i remember the basketball game yeah. um in hindsight i was surprised that you let me play that basketball game knowing that uh that we'd be moving the... anything to kill the staring at my mom anything yeah. to avoid having to just look across the dinner table and say this is it for four years or two years or so yeah i wasn't going to take that from you yeah, yeah. So i wasn't going to <laughs> yeah you, one you side know. note about that again we're not doing a video podcast so for the people listening uh, my dad has a very very nice shaped but bald head um i remember going to that basketball game i remember you showing up and you had finally shaved your head before we moved to new guinea yeah i remember the shock value of seeing my dad's bald head for the first time mm. actually helped me cope with the goodbye because I was so shocked. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out, yeah, you had a good shaved head to go bald. I shaved my head a couple weeks ago, and I realized I got a real alien-looking head. And uh, yeah. But anyways, um, yeah, so I remember we, we flew Qantas. I remember that um, three-story plane, something crazy like that. And sure enough, after about 48 hours of travel, we touched down yeah. in Wewak, Papua New Guinea, and I remember, um, I remember that humid and that heat just smacks you in the face. Was it unreal or what? Yeah, yeah. you just walk outside and that heat and that humidity smacks you in the face, and you got all eyes on you, all these you know native people yeah. staring at these new white people coming into town, and I remember the Woodards picked us up, and uh, and drove us back. Yeah. And I remember seeing, I remember, I'm trying to remember everything. I'm having flashbacks. I don't think my wife will mind. At the time, um, I was pretty much in love with Allie Woodard, who picked us up <laughs> at the time, which is now just so funny to laugh at. Yeah. But I'm trying to remember my first impressions of landing in New Guinea. Was one is I was smitten with Allie Woodard. Didn't work out. Um, <laughs> Didn't work out. Were you nine? Did you have high hopes? I, I'm, just, I'm just joking. But, I um, and I remember. Um, being just like enamored with the geckos everywhere. Remember right? they had those fluorescent light bulbs yeah. and there was about a dozen geckos on each one because they would go to the light because they knew the bugs would go to the light. And yeah, so it was freezing. Well, that, I don't know if you remember it, but I was the last one in cause I was helping unload the van with all of our luggage. And I went into the little uh, townhouse or apartment they had for us. And I remember seeing Michael's butt and feet hanging out from underneath the couch. So I'm like, what are you doing? And he backs out and he's got a gecko in each hand. And, um, I was like, oh my, I was like in the first 30 seconds we were there Yeah, <laughs> and it was just, yeah. oh man, it just started, what a journey it was. Yeah. Um, I remember like there were some hardcore missionary kids out there, but nobody was more hardcore than the three of us. I mean, like, you know, there, I mean, shout out to the Brendel boys. Um, and I'm trying to think of a couple other ones. They were all, you know, great missionary kids, but as far as just like diving into the culture, like yeah. nobody had the stories we had. That's not the yeah. flex or anything like that. But man, no. I think that like the three of us like loved it. And yeah. you know, there's a lot of things that didn't go according to your plan. Yeah. But man, I couldn't have asked for a better childhood. I think growing up in that environment, something yeah. that I'm excited and thrilled for. Maybe Haven will have a similar um, environment where she grew up. And same with Lennon. Um, I have this really bad habit of just saying Haven and assuming the two kids. I'm trying to be better about it, saying yeah, Haven right. and Lennon. Yeah. But it's actually a huge mouthful to say Haven and Lennon. It's a lot. But anyway. Yeah, my daughters. <laughs> yeah, my daughters, yeah. my kiddos. Um, but yeah, and I remember the last thing that that is like burned into my memory from that first day is there was like that 
I think it's the German brand of soda. It's like Schweppes or yeah, Schweppes or something. You can only get really ginger ale Schweppes out here, but there's a pineapple flavor of Schweppes soda. Yeah, I remember in that hot, humid heat, um, someone handed me that pineapple soda, ice cold. I remember just thinking, man, this place is pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah, me too. And within a matter of months, I had kidney stones from drinking that garbage when I was dehydrated from the humidity, and that gave us our first trip to Australia. <laughs> yep, and then we ended up in Australia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, anyways, all in all, we ended up spending what six, seven years in New Guinea. Not quite. Off and on, we came back once. Mom had some health issues. Yeah. Um, we ended up coming back for a furlough. Um, got to see Clayton Kershaw pitch his rookie year. We ended up shipping back, and then we ended up back for good. Um, a lot of people think that, you know, wow, seven years, six years, five years, I don't even know. Um, that's a really long time. Oh, it's not. Um, it was actually extremely fell short. I think that you guys would probably still be there or maybe just coming back at this point. The plan was pretty much go and I was going to graduate high school from Numenoy and all that. Didn't end up working out. Um, but, uh, here we are and, and now um, you know, God has led us all in new directions with new challenges. Um, one thing that like doesn't bum me out and I hope you don't mind. I'm sort of putting you on the spot and challenging you a little bit live on my podcast. Mm-hmm, um, but the last couple of days, you know, you vented me a little bit just about failure and, you know, you felt like everything you'd invested into New Guinea was a failure. Um, mm. and you're, you're, you know, I could understand that emotion just because of the amount of work that you put in and all yeah. of that. Um, but man, I just like throughout your story from being a police officer to that psychic to, um, you know, to where we've ended up over the last, what is that? Like 25, 26 yeah. years since those days, there are so many things <clears throat> along the way that God has blessed in that, um, you know what you, you screwed up as a police officer and you lost your job. And that's something that you, know, you could choose to hang your head on, or you can choose to be thankful for the new direction God puts you in. Yeah. Because in that new direction, um, I was able to meet my wife and have my two beautiful daughters. That's right. Um, and, and we were able to go to new Guinea. And even if it's one soul that, that you helped contribute to save, which mm-hmm. is more than that, you know, I know at least my count was one with Lonnie. That's right. Um, Andy Offe, I, I, I got, I got two count. Um, right. You know, and Lonnie went on to be an elder in that church. Yeah, and yeah. there's a, you know, God used you in many different ways, and I know that you know, maybe we don't see 100 percent eye to eye and the charismatic predestiny type things, but I certainly see God's hand throughout your story, and yeah, um, I don't know. It's kind of exciting that your story is not quite up yet, and so, anyways. All to say is, is that I hate to hear you use the word failure with anything because mm. it may not have gone to your plan. Yeah. Um, and I don't necessarily believe that God has, um, you know, God had a plan that has gone according to plan like he's some mastermind yeah. villain type thing. I mean, he certainly is all-knowing and all-powerful, but I don't necessarily think that, you know, it was, you know, his plan for this to occur or that to occur that are totally random, but... God certainly had his hand um, and still has his hand in our lives. And I know that your story is certainly not done being told and mine isn't either. Yeah. But again, like the most impactful thing that I'm trying to say is that if I were to even just to take a selfish portion of it is that, you know, the journey that you had been on 
whether successful or not, led me to eventually meeting my wife and having my, my daughters. Yeah. It led me um, to the opportunity of, of assisting um, with leading Lonnie to, to know Jesus and Yaffe to know Jesus. Yeah. And, and um, I've met and still know incredible people from New Guinea. Um, you know, a guy like Cameron Ludwig, who you know, is a lifetime, lifetime friend. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. Anyways, I just, no, I, I hate to hear you hating your head a little bit on it. Well, that we came up short of, of the yeah, expected but, time. You know, the reality is too, like there's a lot of your older brother's suffering still your mom's health. Like there's a lot of things. So I don't think we ever say that our journey in or out of ministry or in or out of this ministry or that ministry is a failure. Um, I think maybe you know when I say those things, I'm I'm reminiscing back on on regrets, on things mm-hmm. I wish I had done differently. Um, the reality is, yes, God is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's a sovereign God. We walk this journey, um, but I think um, there's still you know the the judgment of the believer at the end of our lives. Colossians three twenty three twenty four. Like I would rather own those things now mentally. And, and make the decisions I make now and help other people make decisions they make now based on being willing to call them failures instead of saying, well, you know, God does all things for people that love him and quote the verses and stuff. And look, the reality is I made some parenting failures. The reality is I made some husband failures. Still am. I have did some things. I ran off 100 miles an hour to reach people in the jungle and, and left a wife and kid behind sometimes. So I don't think the journey's a failure. I think when I identify those things, I'm taking responsibility. And um, this idea that God is the narrative of our failures too is like, let's, let's not even go there because that's such a, a deep, complexing thing. But I won't mm-hmm. I won't put it on him. And one of the neatest things, in fact, I think it was abuser. <laughs> he thanked me that when I left the field, I wrote an honest email. And everything was, well, God called us to do this. I'm like, Really? You're going to put it on him. You came out here, spent a fortune of hard-earned worship money from your home churches, never embraced the language study, never embraced the culture, never put in the time. And now at the end of three years, having confused hundreds of tribal villagers, you're just going to say, God called you to something else? Like, excuse my language, but what a load of crap that is. So I take the other approach. I was young. I was zealous. I did make an impact. You did make an impact. But there was a lot of failures on that journey. And calling them for what they were helps me. It doesn't mean I'm a failure. It doesn't mean God isn't going to use me. It doesn't mean any of those things. But So I guess when I say that, I mm-hmm. just reminisce on what mistakes that I made yeah. that I own. And I don't, uh, If I ever say, God, call me to do this, and it's some BS, I hope somebody just pokes me right in the belly and goes, hey, and, you know, yeah. own it, man. And yeah. uh, in my own theological journey, the judgment seat of Christ is uh, supposedly now just for the delegating of rewards. It's just not how I understand it. We're going to stand before him and be judged for the things we've done, whether good or bad, end quote. And um, we've screwed people. We're going to hear about it. Maybe even be, certainly don't believe in purgatory, and I don't know what it looks like, but I want to own own my crap now mm-hmm. and help other people to own theirs. It's part of the grace message, you know, um, is we have liberty in Christ, freedom in Christ, but accountability at the end of the journey. So we better do the right thing, or at least try to. And, and I'm not saying I'm there at all. Yeah. So anyway, I hear what you're saying, and you're right, and I do have a pity party sometimes, but I look back at some of the damage done, and I just kick myself. I go, wow. But in the end, you're you're right. Good points. Yeah. Well, I guess the last thing that you know we have here, we've been going for an hour 20. 
my wife texted me and said that mom is passed out on the couch upstairs, so she probably wants to go down yeah. here and go to bed. Sorry, honey. Um, yeah, shout out to uh, shout out to mom, who's an avid listener of the of the old potty. But uh, um, the last thing I want to am- ask you right now um, is, what do you advice do you have for me as a young dad of two? Young dad of two. Um, who is, you know, about about halfway through the first two years of the four years. So I'm really a quarter of the way through yeah. um, of what our pursuit would be is going into ministry in some capacity. And we don't know what that looks like. If it's going to be overseas, I could very well see something stateside, you know, it's a whole other discussion, but I do feel yeah. a biblical responsibility taking care of my mother-in-law. Um, and so we want to be close to her in some capacity. I don't know where we'll end up, but we are going into ministry at some point. Yeah. What advice do you have for me as a young father of two your granddaughters um what advice do you have for me well i think um it, well i'm gonna say right, this. Can I put you on the spot no <laughs> you did and that's a good thing but i would just say like make the decisions you make not to run off because you have an experience where no one ever told you about jesus and suddenly this tribal story resonates with you um you stop and you have long, long conversations, deep spiritual conversations with men in your life, with um, your parents, with and your wife. Listen, 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 and then make those decisions on what's based, what's... I mean, you're going to be able to pick up your cross and follow me. That's not a gospel verse. That's a disciple verse, but... At the same time, don't make your daughters bury it, carry mm. theirs too young. Put them so high up. Like I, we did some. We didn't talk about it today, but we did the dorm thing, and I think it was uh, for you. It worked out well for your brother, not so much. But the thought of my grandkids going away to a dorm just kills me. Like there's mm. just so much out there that you can do to make an impact, and I see just a small handful of Christians that are willing to go and so zealous. Like, well, you know what? Get the language first, and then have kids. Or, you know, trying to do too much. It is an insane. I mean, this is so, it's so insane. When we left there, Swy's skull was hanging on a tree 150 mm. yards from our house. Like, and that was okay with us. Yeah. A, a man that we knew that, you know, he was a local retarded guy, a neighboring village murdered him. But he was always there, always around, always wanting a snake to eat or some crazy thing. But in the end, we had gone to the point where his skull was on a tree and we'd walk by it. Yeah, on a post. On a post. So it's like... And that was like, I wonder if I should put that picture in the next newsletter. Well, my goodness, did I get as calloused as the cop I used to be? It's a human being who had his head cut off by a neighboring village. And we, po- excuse me, we didn't put it there. But we had enough influence to have it take it down, but I didn't. The point is, is that you want to make these decisions knowing what a radical burden this is. And there are people that have amazing abilities to raise kids, navigate the language, the culture, all those things at the same time, and stay balanced. Make sure you're that person before you try and do it. I didn't do that. I didn't make sure I was that well-balanced guy. And in light of everything, we did okay, and and you're proof of that. (laughs) But just, yeah, keep it in perspective and keep it as a slow journey and and be willing to say, I've got kids, and I'm going to do this ministry instead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. And I think Beck and I have both agreed that our number one ministry and mission field is our children. Yeah. and that's something that we put a ton of value in, and we're going to prioritize that over 
yeah. our future goals in ministry or whatever that might look like. I've got yeah. pipe dreams on pipe dreams. If I were to choose anything, you know, if I were told, Mason, anything in the world you want to be, I'd be a bush pilot in New Guinea. Yeah. Is it going to happen? <laughs> I'd probably have a better chance of winning the lottery. Yeah. Mainly, mainly because it's like 15 years of education and then training and then uh, I'm colorblind. And there's just a lot of... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a closed door. It, it's, a, it's a closed door. Yeah. Um, but regardless is that we know that we want to serve the Lord, but first we're going to... You know, yeah. our children are going to be the ministry. And yeah, well, that's the beauty of it is you don't have to choose the Great Commission or your kids. You just choose a way to fulfill the Great Commission with your kids in mind. Yeah. And that keeps them from becoming the idol that keeps you out of ministry. Yeah. Huh. Yep. All right, Pops. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I um, yeah. appreciate you uh, you flying all the way out here just to be on the podcast. <laughs> I came out here for your daughters, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Let's wrap this thing up. So, uh, yeah. so little Jenny Jocker that you met in, in third or first grade, whatever that was on your kickball team, can go to bed. So, yeah. <laughs> all right, She's tired. all right. This has been episode nineteen, almost twenty of the Happy Raccoon Podcast. This has been Mason Cratch with his dad. Mike Cratch, uh, thanks for tuning in. I do appreciate it.